Great, thank you very much. Well, let's pray as we uh, look at God's word here. Father, thank you that uh, you are a speaking God, and I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts today, give us open and receptive ears and hearts and minds to what you want to say to us, and uh, I pray that you give us hearts that love you more as a result of what we discover in your word about Jesus. Amen. When we go through um, distressing times, our vision of God can get a bit blurry, can't it? Now, I got uh, glasses for the uh, first time about a year ago. I'd been on a uh, mission trip in Bulgaria, and for a sketch, I'd had to dress up as a scientist, so I thought I'd borrow someone's glasses and put them on. So I just borrowed this person's glasses, put them on, and they just happened to be entirely the right focal length for me. And I could suddenly see long-distance things like trees really clearly. And it's like, wow, I can see. Um, so uh, it was only then, when I was given these glasses, that I realised how poor my eyesight had become. And it's when we go through distressing and tough times that our vision of God can similarly deteriorate. It's hard to see him as good and loving in those times. It, it's hard to trust that he really is in control. It can be our own suffering and illness. It can be when friends or family are suffering. Obviously, uh, you as a church have had a tough time recently with uh, John Ayrton leading this serious operation. And the kind of questions that go through our hearts and minds this time is, has God lost control? What about when people are personally unkind or nasty to us, that person in the office who never has a good word for you, or that neighbour who's constantly slandering all you, or, or family members giving you grief for your faith, perhaps? How are we to personally work through the pain caused when someone sins against us? Someone close to us, perhaps. It's, it's those when friends and family uh, hurt us. That's the deepest wounds, aren't they? How are we to deal with when we sinned against, even within the church family? Well, Peter's two questions here in Matthew's Gospel deal with these live issues. And Jesus has answers. That's the good news. He wants to teach us that he is very much in control. So we can trust him through those dark times. And he also wants us to teach us about the very practical issue of forgiveness. He wants to give us a correct perspective on these issues to help us see clearly in difficult times. So I hope you'll see how relevant it is. Now, um, back in uh, Matthew 16, verse 16, we've seen a key turning point in the gospel. The first half of the gospel is Jesus revealing that he is indeed the promised king of Israel. All the kind of images and prophecies that the Old Testament so carefully wove for us, he so uh, completely fulfills. Matthew shows us he's the king, he's the high priest, he's the prophet, he's the temple, he's the tabernacle, he's the ark, he's the Passover lamb. All these Old Testament pictures and categories pointed forward to and were fulfilled in Jesus when he came. And in chapter 16, verse 16, it's clicked for Peter. He's suddenly begun to see clearly. He's had his blind eyes open to who this guy Jesus is. He recognises Jesus is the Christ. And straight after this, Jesus has begun to explain to them that he's setting out for the cross, that he's heading towards Jerusalem. He's letting them in on his key mission. And in 16, verse 21, and 17, verse 22, he said this twice. I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed. But the disciples, like us, are a bit dim. Their, their vision is very blurry. And they don't comprehend what he's saying. They've thought Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be crowned in honour and glory. 
first time Jesus predicted the cross, Peter's actually rebuked him for it. And then as you've heard last week, Jesus goes up on a mountain and is transfigured before him. He shows his true blazing glory before his, uh, these three disciples. And uh, God the Father has kind of shout from heaven, listen to my son. Listen to him when he says he really is going to the cross. This is not some mistake. He must suffer and die for us. And so in chapter 17, verse 22, immediately before our first passage, Jesus, uh, for the second time, predicts he's going to the cross. Verse 22, um, When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. And it's in this backdrop of distress and grief that over Jesus' prediction of the cross that we get this story about the temple tax. The disciples are distraught. They've, they've followed Jesus around for three years now. Their whole lives are devoted to following him. Now he tells them he's going to die in Jerusalem. All their hopes are starting to collapse. All their dreams are beginning to fade. All their fears are beginning to mount. Perhaps you're very distressed at the moment. Maybe it's uh, illness or uh, debt or struggling to make ends meet. Bereavement, loss perhaps. It's in this backdrop of disciples feeling confused and distressed that we get this bizarre little story about the temple tax. The disciples have entered Capernaum, which in chapter 4 we've been told was where Jesus lived for a while. And so temple tax collectors would collect money from residents of where people used to live. And there were various types of uh, Jewish giving uh, uh, to support the temple. Some were optional and some were compulsory. Now, it seems the one in question here was the optional tax. And Jesus doesn't seem to pay at first here, which leads to the collectors, uh, the temple tax collectors asking Peter, does your teacher not pay the tax? And when Peter enters the house, before he's got a chance to say anything, notice that in verse 25, Jesus speaks to him first. Jesus knows what's been going on outside. He knows the conversation that's been going on outside and uh, speaks to Peter even before Peter's got a chance to ask him. Jesus, through his relationship with God the Father, knows everything that's going on. He is sovereign. He's sovereignly in control. And so he poses Peter a question to get him thinking. What do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take duty or tax? From their sons or from others? And Peter replies, well, from others. This is the way of the world, isn't it? Rulers and influential people, they don't tax their own families. I read in the uh, news the other day about a guy called Theodorin Obiang. He's the son of the dictator who runs Equatorial Guinea. You can look that up in Operation World later on. He was in the news recently for reportedly commissioning the world's second most expensive yacht at an estimated cost of £200 million. He already has a $25 million Malibu mansion, a fleet of luxury cars, and a private jet. This son of the ruling dictator is allowed all of this, whilst his fellow countrymen, many of them are still in poverty. As Jesus and Peter know, from who do the kings of the earth take tax or toll? From their sons or others? Clearly, from others. Jesus said to others, well, then the sons are free, aren't they? The sons are exempt. Jesus used an illustration from everyday life to make a bigger spiritual point. Jesus is heading towards the cross. He's just told them that. But the purpose 
is a grand one and a good one, so that we can be adopted as sons. We can be adopted into God's family, God, the King of Kings family. We can call God our Father and we become heirs of this world. That is why Jesus is going to the cross. So let's rejoice in this privilege. If you're not a Christian today, this is what you're missing out on. Do you want this? Do you want to be adopted into God's family as one of his sons and have him as your heavenly father? That's the immense privilege that we Christians know and enjoy. That's why Jesus goes to the cross. He wants to adopt us as sons. Now, he's not being uh, sexist here, describing us as sons, if you ladies are worried about. Jesus equally calls us the bride of Christ. No, he's using the term son so Peter can understand all the implied meanings of rights and inheritance from the Old Testament. Jesus went to the cross so we can be adopted as sons. So if we're now free sons of the King of Kings, what's that mean? Does it mean I'm free to do anything? Well, as sinful humans, all the way through the Bible, mankind has misunderstood what freedom means. Mankind tends to think freedom is freedom to do what we want. But we always do that. Our problem is that we do exactly what we want, and so often what we want to do is sinful and selfish. Now, whilst God gives us the freedom to do what we want, the real question is, am I free to do what I ought? Am I free to do what God says instead of what my selfish, sinful heart says? The power of what Jesus is teaching is that in adopting us into God's family, Jesus is giving us true freedom as sons. By the power of the Spirit, we can start to do what we ought. True freedom, what God wants instead of what we selfishly want. Jesus is the perfect son, the perfect model of freedom. But how did he use it? In perfect obedience to the Father. He didn't do what he selfishly wanted but laid down his life for us at the cross. And we as Christians have his spirit in us. We have that same freedom, but we're to use it in the same way that he did uh, for obedience, not selfishness. As Paul says in uh, Galatians 5, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. We're to use our freedom as sons of God to bless and serve and love others, not to be selfish. So we're to use our freedom to love others. Being, freedom is, uh, being free is not a license to do what we want and satisfy whatever impulses we have. Quite the opposite. We're to be led by the Spirit in love for others and serving others, just as Jesus did, the most free person ever. So it's worth thinking through, how can I practically love and serve those around me? Those in the office, my neighbours, my family, in the church family. What simple practical things can I do to show them love and care? And we're not to uh, abuse our freedom in regard to the state either. As we see in verse 27, Jesus is the king of kings. He's utterly free and exempt he exercises this freedom in submitting to this optional temporal tax so as not to give offence. Peter clearly learnt this lesson from Jesus as when he writes his letter of 1 Peter later on in the backdrop of a heavily persecuted church by the state, he still encouraged Christians to submit to the state even when it was abusing them. Following Christ's example, 
who suffered an unjust trial and unjust execution for us at the cross. We're to not use our freedom uh, and abuse it, but we're to use it in a Christ-like way, even if that obedience means suffering for God. He's the model of how free sons are to live. We're to use our freedom to submit to those in authority. Now, that in our culture, often authority figures nowadays are increasingly disrespected. This gives us as a chance as Christians to live really differently and uh, in a, uh, distinguish ourselves. Rather than rubbishing the boss at the office when everyone else does at lunch, we can actually speak positively, encouragingly about them. If you're at school, you can make a teacher's job easier, not harder. We can submit to and obey our parents, especially on Mother's Day. Uh, Jesus even obeyed his human parents, didn't he? What an astonishing thing that is. He was God, yet he obeyed and submitted his human parents. Obedience and submission are not dirty words in the Bible, even if they are in our culture. We can pray for and be involved in our society, writing to MPs, being involved in the community, being a blessing to the state. All of this is using our freedom as sons of God positively, taking Christ as our example. Jesus was going to the cross so we can be adopted as free sons. And the cross shows that God has not lost control. As you heard last week in the Transfiguration account, God had to say with his megaphone from heaven, listen to Jesus. The disciples' distress was somewhat displaced. They were starting to think, think things had got out of control. Not at all. The cross is not a disaster, but a triumph. This has been God's plan all along. Jesus had hinted at his sovereignty by knowing uh, Peter's question in advance about the temple tax in verse 25. But to drill the point home just how control in control he is, Jesus then does the most astonishing thing in verse 27. Uh, look at that, verse 27. Uh, so as not to offend them, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. This is one of the most gobsmacking verses in scripture. How in control of stuff do you have to be to pull this one off? I mean, walking on water is pretty cool. Uh, it means not getting your feet wet. Feeding 5,000 people with uh, two loaves and five fish is awesome. But this is just stupendous. To pull this off, Jesus not only has to be in control of every fish in the sea, he also has to control which fish will be first caught by Peter. And then how do you get exactly the right coinage in the fish's mouth? I mean, Peter doesn't even need to get changed, does he, from the fish? The more I thought about it, the more dumbfounded I was. It just leaves you wanting to worship Jesus, doesn't it? Someone this much in control of every tiny detail. But this is no magician's party trick. In the context, it's monumentally important that the disciples grasp just how control uh, Jesus is. Their distress over the cross is because they think God has lost control. He hasn't. As I've said before, the cross was God's plan A. It was his intention all along. And however much it looks like failure and defeat at first sight, Jesus nailed naked to a Roman cross, it is in fact glory and victory, not shame and defeat. God was totally in control at the cross. It was his plan all along. God used our evil actions, mankind nailing Jesus to the cross, for the good, to save us who didn't deserve it at all. God is good. God is in control. 
even in the most distressing of times, which means which he's in total control also when we face situations that are distressing. When we turn on the news and see these distressing pictures in Japan or we see the Middle East in turmoil, the Bible is clear that God still is in control and also in our personal lives. The Bible's clear in Romans 8, verse 28 and 29. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So in all things, in everything, God is working for the good. So that must include natural disasters, job losses, illnesses, bereavements, debt, every situation in life. In all of them, God is working for the good. Well, how is that possible, we ask? The question is, what is that good God is working towards? What is the purpose? And the next verse in Romans uh, tells us, verse 29, for those, those God foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God is sovereignly in control, and he's working all things to shape and mould us to be like Jesus in character, to be like his Son. Where do we see Jesus' character most clearly? Where do we see his obedience to the Father, his, his grace towards those hurting him, his love, his mercy? All these things at the cross. At the time of his worst suffering, there his impeccable character shines through, doesn't it, the most. And so often, so God in his sovereignty, it's in our distressing times that God shapes and moulds us the most to be like Christ. It's not pleasant at the time, but God uses it and it produces a harvest of righteousness. Hebrews talks about that. God is good, and he is in control. The cross proves it, and this story with the fish proves it. We can trust the sovereign God, even in distressing times. So how are we then to react to people that personally hurt us? That's the second issue. What about the people that cause our suffering? People that slander and abuse us, make our lives a misery, perhaps? Well, that's what our second passage in uh, Matthew is all about. Peter's on the ball, and he asks this question about forgiveness in Matthew 18, verse 21 to 35. So just flick on to the, to the next page there. His question is about how much should we forgive someone? When we're sinned against, it can be so painful, can't it? Our gut reaction is to, to hold a grudge or to try and get some uh, revenge or something. Sometimes that's really overt, lashing out at them or gossiping back about them, telling everyone else what they've done. Other times it's a kind of cold war, giving people the cold shoulder, and we try and ostracize them because of the hurt they've done to us. But Jesus' teaching in this passage is clear to us. The simple point is we should forgive others according to how much we've been forgiven by the king. And this is, again is what it, part of what it means to be children of God. This is how we're to behave. Now, Peter asks at the beginning of this section, should, should we forgive seven times if our brother hurts us? And Jesus says no. no. Uh, look what he says there um, in verse uh, 22. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, what's going on with the maths here? Seven times, 77 times. Well, I'm convinced that it's a reference back to a very early event in the Bible, back in Genesis 4, verse 24. You can either look that up, but I'm going to put it on the screen at the same time. Um, back there in Genesis, Adam and Eve have rebelled in the garden. They've been uh, banished from God's presence. And they give birth to Cain and Abel. 
and Cain promptly kills Abel, his brother. So Eve then gives birth to another son called Seth. And from then on, you've got these two lines of uh, children. You've got Cain's line is the wicked, evil line. And then you've got Seth's lines, the good, godly line that follow God. And you have these two lines of uh, children contrasted. And Cain's line leads down to a very evil character called Lamech. And I'll put this up on the screen, if you can see that. Now, this is what Lamech says to his wives. Adder and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech is the epitomization of vengefulness. He kills a man for wounding him. He threatens to pay back 77 times revenge for any mistreatment he gets. Now, this is a guy you really don't want to accidentally bump into in the street, isn't it? He's so volatile, he's like, take your head off. Now, I'm convinced Jesus' use of the 77 times is a hint back to, uh, reference back to this story as he's talking to Peter. He's saying to Peter, you must be the opposite of Lamech if you're going to follow me as a cross-carrying disciple. Lamech epitomized extreme vengefulness. Christians must epitomize extreme forgiveness. Peter visualized the kind of a record of uh, wrongs, counting up the number of times someone has wronged against you. Seven strikes and then you're out. No more forgiveness for you. But Jesus is demolishing that. Jesus is just saying, uh, not about forgiving exactly 77 times, he's talking about a constantly forgiving character. And so he tells the story to illustrate just how forgiving uh, we should be and why. This servant of a king is in incredible debt when it comes to the time of settling accounts. He owes a staggering 10,000 talents. Now that's a mind-blowing amount of cash. Forget your mortgage loans or your student debts. A single talent was worth 20 years' wages. And this guy has lost 10,000 of those talents. So that's 200,000 years' wages. Now, if the average wage is 20 grand in the UK now, this guy has lost a staggering 4 billion quid. Now, this guy here knows about that. This is Jerome Kerville, looks a nice enough chap. On uh, 5th of October last year, this uh, Societe Generale trader, that's a bank, was found guilty of breach of trust, forgery, and the unauthorised use of the bank's uh, Societe Generale's computers, resulting in losses in 2008 valued at 4.9 billion euros through a whole series of uh, bad trades. Oops. Having single-handedly lost such a colossal amount of money, he was sentenced uh, last year to, well, only five years in prison, with two years suspended, uh, a permanent ban-, ban from working in financial services, and the best bit, full restitution of the 4.9 billion euros. A spokeswoman for the bank said this, the monetary restitution was symbolic, uh, and the bank had no expectation that the sum would be repaid. No kidding. <laughs> so how is he ever going to afford to pay 4.9 billion euros back? I wonder what Jerome said to his wife on the, the day she got, when he, the day he lost the money, and she said, how was your day at the office, dear? <laughs> well, in Jesus' parable, verse 25 is a classic dry understatement by Jesus. Since the servant could not pay, well, of course he couldn't pay. He'd lost the GDP of a small country. 
So he's about to be punished and sold into slavery when he implores the master with the most ridiculous plea in the Bible. Verse 26. Have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. He begs, I'll pay back everything. Now we get a hint here of this guy's heart attitude, don't we? He won't own up to his mistakes and he he, he thinks he can earn his way out of his debt. Give me time and I'll pay you back everything. Really? Are you going to work for 200,000 years to pay the master back? Out of pity and mercy, the master releases him and forgives him. It's incredible mercy from the master. He lets him off this massive debt. And before we move on, let's just uh, pause to reflect. Letting the servant off the debt is no easy thing. It is incredibly costly to the master, isn't it? It costs him four billion quid to let this stupid servant off. But no sooner is this uh, measly servant out of prison that he's out reclaiming his debts from his fellow debtors. His fellow servant owns him a hundred denarii. This is like a hundred days' wages, maybe five thousand pounds in today's money. And he seizes him and chokes him, demanding payment. The fellow servant pleads with him with exactly the same line. Have patience and I will pay you back. Now, this time, that's a realistic offer. Paying someone back £5,000 is entirely possible, isn't it? But the first servant is having none of it and throws the fellow servant into prison. When the other servants hear of it, they're uh, livid, they're outraged and tell the master. He justly points out that he forgave the servant because he pleaded with him, so he should have done likewise for his fellow servant. The master is incensed and hands the servant over to the jailer. Notice for how long, verse 34, until he should pay back all his debt. That's a 200,000-year life sentence. Then listen to the killer application Jesus makes in verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. The key in the story is obviously God, and we are all the servant with the huge debt. Because God is utterly perfect and holy, before him we've stacked up a ridiculous amount of debt towards him through our sin rebellion. It's not just our sinful actions that God considers, but every wrong thought, every wrong motive, everything we haven't done for the glory of God. We are desperately, desperately in debt towards God. Anyone who thinks they can earn their way to God's favour or thinks they haven't sinned much has ridiculously underestimated God's purity and their own sinfulness. Please don't fall into this trap. Listen to what Jesus is saying here. We all deserve a 200,000-year life sentence, he's saying. That's how serious our sin is. And there won't be any parole. If we keep on sinning in God's eternal prison as we rage against God for judging us, we just add to our infinite eternal sentence. But the astonishing good news of the Bible is, of Jesus going to the cross, is that in God's tremendous love for us, when we didn't deserve it one bit, God came to rescue lost debtors like us, lost rebels, lost enemies, hostile to God. Jesus came to forgive, yes, even us. Even those of us who've been Christians for a very young uh, age, we too have run up this debt. We too need this forgiveness. But as with the master in the parable, that forgiveness is not cheap. Remember, letting the uh, servant off the debt cost the master four billion pounds. Jesus pays that huge debt for us that we owed on our behalf. 
we've been plucked off death row and adopted into God's family, all at God's expense. We've been forgiven the most huge amount of debt. God is astonishingly merciful to us. Forgiveness isn't cheap. There's always a cost to sin. And someone has to pay that cost. Either we pay the cost for it, or Jesus pays the cost for it. He pays or we pay. That's the choice we all face. If you're not a Christian here say, I beg you, I plead with you, please let Jesus be the one to take your guilt for you. Let him pay and turn back to him as rightful king of your life. The cost of bearing your sin is immense. Jesus expressed it in this hundreds of, thousands, hundreds of years of punishment. Jesus is not exaggerating to make a point. He loves us desperately and doesn't want to see us punish. Forgiveness is offered freely to us, but far from cheap. Jesus stepped in as that substitute for us. He, the infinite being behind the universe, died for us mere mortals, simply out of his astonishing love and mercy toward us. So as much as we're adopted as sons, this is the cost that it costs God to do this for us. It's entirely grace and mercy. So imagine our French friend, Jerome Curviel, the guy who racked up that 4.9 billion uh, uh, euros of debt, suddenly being told one day, you're totally forgiven. You can go free. Someone else has paid the debt for you. Can you imagine the sense of relief he'd feel? Well, if you're a Christian today, that's the amount of relief we should feel. We've been let off that stupendous debt. This is how our generous God treats us. We've been set free from the shackles of um, this eternal prison, and even been better, been given this relationship with this God, this merciful God, starting now and going on into paradise in the future where we'll be with him forever. This is what Jesus' forgiveness has won for us. So the crunch application of this that Jesus has for us is how will we respond when people hurt or mistreat us? Will we respond like our master with forgiveness ourselves? Or will we go down the servant's line, like Lamech's line of vengefulness? Jesus very sternly warns us, anyone who's contemplating being an unforgiving Christian. For Jesus, that's a contradiction in terms. There shouldn't be no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. If we've come to appreciate the astonishing debt that God has paid off for us, then how can we possibly hold trifling debts over people around us? Um, Now, this is not to say that forgiving someone else is easy. As I've said, it means letting go of a debt that they've done against you. It feels very costly. But actually, you find that it's liberating not only for the other person, but for you. That's the interesting thing to note in the story. Where does the servant end up? He ends up in prison, doesn't he? If you fail to forgive, that's what it feels like uh, for you. A prison, you feel shackled by bitterness and these grudges that build up inside you, resentment. I'm sure we all know people who just, you can see their lives eaten up through unforgiveness. It's not a pretty sight. Forgiveness not only sets others free, but yourself. So do you want to know that freedom that Christ has come to buy for you? As sons of God, we're meant to be free, uh, free to forgive others, free from these chains and shackles of unforgiveness. Now this may touch a, a raw nerve for some of you. Uh, maybe people who are sitting here who've fallen out with other people who are very close to you or even people in the church family here. Jesus says, get it sorted out today. Forgive one another. Don't let it go unresolved. Don't let the sun go down 
on your anger and bitterness, the Bible says. So maybe you want to get some prayer ministry at the end to talk about this, to pray through this. Um, Forgive as Christ forgave you. God is the God of astonishing mercy, so we must be merciful too. That's what being sons and children of his looks like. What a good God. What an amazing adoption we have. What a call to change in our lives. So let's just pause at the end and let God bring to anyone, anyone to, uh, to mind that we maybe need to forgive. Let's pray and pause. Father, thank you for your astonishing mercy. I thank you that Jesus came into this world to pay off this enormous debt for us. And uh, Lord, he teaches us to treat others the same, to forgive as Christ forgave us. And so I pray, Lord, uh, that you'd bring to mind anyone that we need to forgive now. And um, I pray, Lord, that you'd give us the strength by your Spirit uh, to forgive them. We thank you for your astonishing grace to us. And I pray that we'd have the power to show the same grace to other people and forgive them. And I pray, Lord, that we would live as uh, free sons of yours, uh, free to obey you and live for you and not be shackled by uh, the ways of the world, free to love others, to serve others, to, to submit to those in authority and uh, to forgive as you forgave us. So I pray, Lord, that you'd change us this week and help us live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.